A couple of years ago, uh, I found myself home alone. We, the, Jennifer and the boys were out of the house. I think they left to go down to the beach with her side of the family, and I had to stay behind for a day, and then I was going to drive down and meet them. Pretty sure that's what was going on. But I was alone. Not even the dog was there. It was just me. And I was excited about that because I was going to cook a steak and eat ice cream and watch sports all by myself. Um, but then the sun set and it got dark. And I was all alone in the house. And it occurred to me at, it, at the age of 35 or whatever, I'm still afraid of the dark. <laughs> I just don't usually have to deal with it because I've got my wife to protect me. I, I didn't like being alone in the house in the dark. Uh, you know, I, so what I thought I had kind of left behind in childhood, this irrational fear of the dark, you know, it just kind of all of a sudden it just came back to me and I had trouble even going to sleep that night. Uh, yo, I, now, I don't know if you're afraid of the dark still as an adult. You know, you don't have to admit it the way I do this morning. But um, we all know what darkness is. And this is, this is a fascinating thing to me. When we speak of darkness, obviously there's a physical reality. If somebody were to flip one of these switches in the back of the room, we'd be, we'd be in the dark, at least for the most part, right? There's a physical reality there that we're aware of. But darkness has a deeper meaning also that everybody's aware of, that we all have a deep sense of. There's a spiritual reality to darkness that even if you're not, if you don't consider yourself a spiritual person, there's still this very deep recognition of what darkness is and what it means. All throughout our culture, we recognize this. Some of our very favorite stories reflect this. If you're a Harry Potter fan, the villain in Harry Potter is the dark Lord Voldemort, who's trying to get Harry to come over into the darkness with him. Uh, if you uh, are like Lord of the Rings, the villain in Lord of the Rings is the dark Lord Sauron, who wants to cover the land of Middle-earth in darkness. If you watch Star Wars, what side is Darth Vader on? The dark side, and he's trying to get Luke to join him on the dark side, right? We, we all understand darkness more than just a physical reality. It's something deeply spiritual. And y'all, the reason we all understand intuitively we know that the world is this way is because God made it this way. The very first thing God says in the Bible, if you go back to Genesis 1, God speaks into the formless void, into the darkness. God says, let there be light, and more than just a physical creation of light, we recognize that light is, is the very nature and character of God. So toward the end of the Bible, if you go to 1 John, John tells us that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And again, even if you're not a spiritual person, you have a deep sense of what that means to say God is light, and in him there is no darkness. It means that God is pure, and he is good, and he is true, and he is loving because that's what light represents. And so the fact that we are full on now into the Christmas season, that means a lot of things. It means our calendars and our budgets, everything, family dynamics, everything looks different. It's all geared in one direction. But y'all, when we talk about Christmas and we talk about Advent, my hope is that we gather around one central idea and one place of, of, um, of devotion, okay? as to what Christmas actually means, what Advent means. It means that God, in all his light and glory, has pierced into and through the darkness of this world. Christmas is God's refusal to leave the world in despair 
and instead to make his grace shine upon us. And that's what Isaiah 9 is about. That's why I asked you to turn to Isaiah 9. It's a prophecy given centuries before the coming of Christ, but what is pointing ahead to what God is planning to accomplish, what Christmas is going to produce for you and me and for the world, okay? So as we look at Isaiah 9, we actually pick up in the middle of a lot of things that are going on in Isaiah 9. I'm going to try to give the best context I can as we go, but just look with me now at the first couple of verses. Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 1, this is the prophet Isaiah speaking the words of God to God's people. He says, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, God treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt or with light esteem. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now, this prophecy is kind of in a middle place because something's about to happen. God has already commissioned Isaiah. We saw that back in chapter 6 of Isaiah. But now there's a middle place where this prophecy is given because what's about to come is actually a great deal of destruction and disaster. God is going to bring upon the northern kingdom of Israel a great curse and a punishment in the form of the Assyrians, the evil uh, barbarian nation of Assyria, they're going to come in and overwhelm northern Israel and take them captive. And this is God's plan. It's God's judgment for Israel's rebellion and sin. So that's what's about to happen. And the truth is that land is never going to recapture its former glory. It's never going to quite be the same again because after the Assyrians come in, and sack Israel and take them into captivity, that northern region becomes a melting pot of all sorts of peoples and ethnicities and races. It's no longer just the Israelites. Now there's an intermingling that's going to take place between Jews and non-Jews, which are called Gentiles. And y'all, that right there is probably the worst thing of all. To 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 the mind of the Jew, the Israelite, they can handle God's discipline but don't bring Gentiles into our midst. That to them would have been a fate maybe worse than death because they would have lost their national sense of identity, their their sense of purity, their sense of, of, frankly, superiority, that we are God's chosen people. Everybody else is on the outside looking in. But now, because of their sin and rebellion, the land is going to be reshaped. And so the idea of this intermingling of peoples now with Gentiles incoming, that to the the mind of the Israelite, that was God's way of saying, I have forgotten you and I've moved on. You are perpetually under a curse now forever. But that's not how the, the prophecy unfolds. The disaster that's coming is leading to a day beyond that one. And that's what uh, Israel is being promised here in the ninth chapter of Isaiah. Now, I'm gonna, I want to show you the same promise that actually shows up centuries later when Jesus arrives on the scene in the Gospel of Matthew, okay? Almost verbatim the same thing, but Matthew's going to help us connect the dots here to what we just read. 
So this is, you don't need to turn there, but in Matthew 4, beginning in verse 12, here's what the gospel says. Now, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we we get a very clear sense when we read Matthew's words that the light that's being promised is not a what, it's not a thing, it's not a power or a force. The light is a person. The light is a whom. Matthew says that when Jesus turned his face to Galilee, he did it in fulfillment of this prophecy. God has made his light shine in the darkest of places. And y'all, what's crazy is if, if we read through the Gospels, we come to recognize that this area of Galilee formerly under the curse, this is where Jesus spent most of his earthly ministry. This is where Jesus performed most of his miracles. Most of his disciples were Galilean men. This is where they were from. And so this place that was thought to be burned over and abandoned by God under the condemning curse has now become the very centerpiece of God's gracious purpose, the showcase of God's glory. This is where Jesus turned his face to live out his ministry. And so, y'all, what I want us to see today is how Jesus brings light, his, his, very, his, very, his self, he brings his light into this place, into the world. But what happened there in Galilee is what's happening right here and now, today, in Ridgeland, Mississippi, and every place around the world where the gospel is being proclaimed and the light is being shined. Anytime a person comes to Jesus, the fulfillment of this prophecy is being revealed, is taking shape. Because we are a people right here and now, 2021, here in America or over in Botswana or in Australia, any place you can name, we are a people living in darkness in need of a great light. And the central message of the Bible is this, that those who live in darkness have one hope and one hope only, it is that the light of God, his divine light, uh, shown through his son, Jesus Christ, would shine on us. So y'all, I mentioned earlier, we've been walking through the gospel of John. If you've been with us at Harvest over the past year, we've been walking through up to now chapter 14, and we'll finish it in the new year. But the very first thing the apostle John tells us is the central message of the Bible and the central message of this prophecy. John told us back in John chapter one, in him was life, in Jesus was life, And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The light of Jesus shines in the dark places, and no amount of darkness can overwhelm or overcome this light. And so, y'all, come back with me to Isaiah 9, because I want us to see the quality of the light that we're talking about here. This, This gift that we've been given that has entered into the world, and specifically, I want us to consider how the light of Christ actually overwhelms and overcomes 
the darkness of this world. Y'all, when we think about darkness, if we're understanding the deeper, more spiritual reality behind it, then we understand what darkness really means. It means lostness. Have you ever been lost in the dark? You know how terrifying that is. It means loneliness. It means fear. It means despair, right? Isn't that what darkness connotes? And ultimately, worst of all, darkness represents evil and sin and death. And when we consider the, the reality, the depth of that darkness, we have, to, we have to acknowledge that there is no, seemingly, there is no power in this world greater than that power. There is no power more final than the power of death. There is no power more, more um, uh, obtrusive to, to human life than the power of sin and evil. Right? We've been working our, our tails off in every possible way to overcome these powers since the beginning, and we haven't discovered a way yet. It's going to take an awful lot of light to overcome the depth of human darkness. But that's what the promise is. Look at verse 6 now of Isaiah chapter 9. How does the promise take shape? Isaiah says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, so, so there's a, it's almost like a mixed message here. God is, is foretelling people already, his people, there's gloom and anguish coming. You can count on it. The Assyrians are coming. But then a great light. Darkness first, but then a great light. And the light is going to have a face. The light will have a name. And he will take on flesh and he will dwell among you to come and to overwhelm and overcome the darkness. And so I mentioned these, these afflictions of darkness that have no human remedy. Lostness, fear, despair, sin, and death. We have no ability within ourselves to overcome these things. Look at how God conquers each one of them through the promise of his son. Lostness. Think about lostness. To be lost in the deepest sense, to be lost means that we're far from God. We're alienated from fellowship and relationship with God. And what the scripture tells us is that this is the default position of humanity. There's no single exception to this rule. Every person is in sin and therefore separated from God. We're sinful and we're ignorant, we're lost and we're in the dark. That is not a popular message, but it's one we've got to be clear on because only when we recognize the depth of the problem can we become aware of the beauty of the solution, right? Into the darkness, the people walking in darkness, God says through Isaiah, they will see a great light. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Now we know, you're in church, you know that's Jesus, right? We're talking about Jesus. But y'all focus for just a second here, not on the person, we'll get to him, but on the nature of his coming. How is Jesus going to come? Is he just going to pop into existence? 30 years old and ready to go? It's not how he came. Is Jesus going to come merely in some very spiritual 
ethereal sense. He's just going to kind of hover above us and advise us on how to better relate to God. No, Jesus comes to us in a manger. Jesus comes as a human child. When God desired to bring us out of our lostness, he didn't just hand us a map and instruct us to find our own way. He didn't advise us or give us better information. He gave us himself. Because the answer is not in us or in anything that we could do. The answer must be divine. It must come from outside of us. And so Jesus, the light, the child born to us, the son given to us, he enters in to rescue us. He enters in to find us. You know, when when the apostle Peter, of course, he was Jesus' disciple. He knew him as well as anybody. Years later, Peter, as an old man, wrote a letter to the church, 1 Peter, where he defined our identity as Christians. One of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, because listen to how we're defined. Nothing about us that we're to celebrate or to boast in. But Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, We are people who proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's who we are. We don't proclaim our own excellencies. We have none to proclaim. We proclaim him because he has brought us out of darkness and into light. And so I just want to say right now, if if you right where you are, if you feel lost, if you feel far from God, I suspect that somebody here might. The answer at Harvest Church is not for us to give you a map to better find your way. We don't do that here. We don't try to whip each other into shape by, by you know, getting hard on each other about all the things we're not doing well, and if you could just do a little bit better, maybe you'd be closer to God. Get your life right. That's not the message here. And that shouldn't be the message in any church because the message of the Scripture is very simple. There is good news, not good advice, but good news of a Savior who came into the dark world that we inhabit to deliver us. You don't have to go out looking for him. The scripture simply says, receive him. Receive him. As many as have received him, to them he has given the right to become children of God, John says. He has been given to us. The answer is not in you. The answer is not somewhere outside that you've got to go and search. The answer is the good news of what God has done that we now may receive as a gift. That's the lostness that darkness implies. Think also about fear and despair. When we talk about darkness, fear and despair, and those two things typically go together because fear often leads to despair, right? They kind of function like cousins, But I want us to consider, regardless of how fearful or despairing you may feel in this moment, let's backtrack just a minute. Isaiah has prophesied of the days to come, still centuries ahead at that time. Y'all, you realize when Jesus did come, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that God had been basically silent for the 400 years prior. That for 400 years, there had been no prophet No Bible book written, no angelic appearance. God had been effectively silent to his people for generation upon generation until the coming of Christ. And so if anybody would have felt tempted to say, God has forgotten us. God has left us to the whims of the Roman Empire who who overran them. God has left us to ourselves. 
We have rebelled and God has turned his back on us forever. Surely there were people among the Israelites who thought that. 400 years. How many generations had come and gone with no clear or new word from the Lord? And so there was cause for fear. But notice again in verse 6, unto us a son is given and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. God will send his son. That's the promise. The day will come when the light will dawn and the government will rest on his shoulders. Now that all by itself is wonderful news. Because every, and this is just the truth, this is historically true, just as it's presently true, no matter what else we might think, every human form of government is fallible and is prone to, frankly, is prone to spiraling into chaos and insanity. There is no historical human government that has survived the test of time. And y'all, I'm of the opinion that we have the best one, okay? I'm very proud to be an American. But it's no secret that we ourselves are always right on the edge of insanity and chaos, full of anger and distrust and worse. There's, if you're putting your hope in your present government or even the future potential of policy and politicians, then your hope is completely bankrupt. And I think deep down we all know that. It doesn't mean we don't elect good people and strive for change, but we don't put our hope there because the government cannot rest on any man's or woman's shoulders. The government can only rest on the shoulders of God, and that's the promise. Don't despair, we're told, because the government will rest upon the shoulders of God's own son. The child born in a manger, completely helpless in that moment, will one day rule over the entire universe. And the task will not be too much for him. His shoulders will be broad enough and strong enough to carry all of it. The governance of the entire human race, of every person who's ever lived, will rest easily on the shoulders of Jesus. And therefore, we should have nothing to ultimately fear or despair of. And y'all, this is not merely an expression of Jesus' power. It's also an expression of his character. You see what it says? The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, y'all, we don't, but for the sake of time, we can only just touch on each one of these. But there's so much meaning wrapped up in the name given to Jesus here, or these series of names. Each term, let's just take it in turn, Wonderful Counselor. Y'all, that, even if you don't know what that means, it just sounds good, doesn't it? There's something very precious about thinking of Jesus this way as our wonderful counselor. And y'all, what it does mean is this, that Jesus graciously, joyfully, wonderfully shepherds us into all that is good and true about God. There is nothing in the end that Jesus will hold out on you. He will shepherd you into all of God's truth and wisdom and goodness. He's our wonderful counselor. Mighty God means that Jesus rules with all divine power and there is no evil that can contend with him. This is not a yin-yang proposition where there's an equal and opposite force. Jesus is good, Satan is bad, and somehow they're going to duke it out and we hope we're on the winning side in the end. That's not how it goes. 
He is the mighty God. No one can contend with his power. Eternal Father means that forever, Jesus will care for you and for me and provide for us as his own children. As God's dear children, we belong to the household of God, adopted in by his grace and favor, and we now belong to him. And so there will be a fatherly love and care and concern for you for eternity. And then Prince of Peace means that Jesus himself will restore and reconcile all the brokenness and sin and evil and darkness. That Jesus has reconciled us to God. And Jesus will even reconcile us eternally to one another. And that's the real trick, by the way. Reconciling us to God doesn't actually seem all that difficult. When I think about people being reconciled one to another, people of every tongue, tribe, and nation, and political view, and everything else, Jesus will do it all because he's the Prince of Peace. And so, y'all, if you, if you feel any sense right now of fear and despair, we, I try to address this often because I know it's where we live. We think about our future, our own livelihood, the economy, our children, you name it. There's plenty to be fearful and despairing about. And the reason we feel that way is because we know deep down we can't control it. That no matter how much we do, no matter how much we push, no matter who we vote for, you name it, at the end of the day, all of those issues are going to remain and new ones pop up all the time. Who saw a pandemic coming two years ago this time? There will always be cause for fear and despair because we are not in control, but there's one who is. One who is not only in control, but who can actually make outrageous promises like these and fulfill them because he's that good and he's that strong. And so Isaiah says, a child will be born, a son will be given, the government will rest on his shoulders and he'll have a name. His name. And now this is interesting. He gives us four names. And so we might be wondering, is, this, is there a grammatical error here? Is it meant to be names? His names will be? No. The name is singular, even though there are four, because this is encompassing the totality of who Jesus is. This is showing us all that he is. Not different parts of him, but who he is in his essence, in his nature. And if he is, really, if he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace, then we have nothing to despair of. Because there is no darkness that can overwhelm this kind of light. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness could not comprehend it. And so we've addressed now lostness, fear, despair, these last two things I've mentioned. What about the darkness of sin and death? And again, I put those together because they go together. Sin leads to death. Death reigns in the world because of sin. And y'all, this is the greatest one. This is the one that we truly can't even touch in our own efforts. This is the one that we can't escape. The finality of death comes to all of us, right? And so we're aware of the problem. And just in case we're not, let me, let me dig a little deeper here. The, and I mention this fairly often because it's, I think it's good to be redundant. The, the darkness of this present world is out there, right? We're very much aware of it. Turn on the news. But the real problem for me, Kyle York, is not what's out there, it's what's in here. And this is something we have to be very sober-minded about. My greatest problem is not that I'm a pretty nice guy and I just happen to inhabit a really stinking, lousy world. No. My problem is me. 
My problem is my sin, my rebellion, my alienation from God. And so, yes, there is plenty of darkness around us, and that is a problem, but our greatest problem is the darkness within. And that's why in John chapter 3, this is the judgment. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. And so let's recognize, and I, y'all, I, as much as I hate to admit this, because I, I like to think of myself as a good person, there is darkness still in me. I've been a Christian for 20 plus years, 23 years. There's darkness that is still in me that I love, even though I hate it. And those things can be simultaneously true. You and I can hate sin. We can hate the guilt and shame that come with sin. We can hate the outcomes of sin and the things that, that, uh, that happen when we hurt other people because of our sin. Yes, we can hate those things and yet still hold on to that sin because there's something about our flesh that just loves it. The light comes into the world, yes, but men love darkness. Okay? And I'm one of them. And so the question is, listen, if there's darkness out there, yes, but there's darkness in here too, how is God going to overcome it all? And especially this, I can, I can appreciate the thought that God and his power can, can deal with darkness generally. But how is he going to get down to the deepest part of my heart? The stuff that I just don't want to let go of. How is he going to get down that deep? Well, we're, we're addressing that here today in Isaiah 9. Look at verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, this is a prophecy of power, right? There will be no end to the increase of his government Jesus will reign on the throne over all creation forever. But let's be clear that God is not interested in power for its own sake. This is not God simply establishing himself over us to prove a point. When it says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, remember what kind of government we're talking about, what we just discussed. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is not just an increase in power. This is an increase in all that Jesus is, in his nature and character. And so for, for, forever, all into eternity future, on and on forever, there will be no limit to the increase of Jesus' character, his nature, his plan, his purpose, his goodness. That's the idea here. Not just that God is powerful, but that he's good. And so I want you to really think about this. I mean, it's, it's silly to say it, I know, but there's never going to come a day, never, when God's going to look out at us and say, y'all, I'm fresh out of grace, come back tomorrow. There's never going to come a day when somebody's going to, going to discover the boundaries of God's righteousness and justice. That God sure is great, but he only goes this far and he can go no further. There is no such boundary. There is no such limitation on God and his goodness. What Jesus has come to accomplish has no limit. And so when we're told that he will establish and uphold his throne with justice and righteousness forever, 
He can only accomplish that by coming down to us first. God is powerful, yes, but the fullest expression of his goodness and love and grace has to come for us in a unique way. And, this, and here's, what, here's how we're going to kind of round the corner here. Isaiah 9 doesn't give us this directly. But when we ask the question, okay, okay, a child is going to be given, a son's going to be born, the government's going to, okay, how's God going to actually accomplish that? How will we know when it comes? How will we know when it's accomplished? How is the light of Jesus really going to invade the deepest darkness of the human heart? Well, that's something that Isaiah 9 doesn't tell us, but Isaiah does later on. Let's cheat just a little bit. It's okay to cheat in church every now and then, all right? I want to point us to Isaiah 53, a prophecy about the very same Savior that comes later. You don't need to turn there unless you're super-duper quick. We'll put it on the screen. Listen to how Jesus accomplishes his reign and rule and salvation. Isaiah says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And this is incredible. How has Jesus justly dealt with the deep sin of my heart? By becoming sin for me by taking my punishment, my condemnation, in my place? How has Jesus dealt with the finality of death and the impending death that we all face in this world? By dying for us on the cross. By taking the condemnation that your sins had earned onto himself and entering into death for you. Y'all, you'll notice this if you've read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. Never one time in Jesus' 33 years did he ever sit down on a throne, even just to see how it felt. Never happened. Because that's not the kind of king he came to be. Jesus came in a manger. Jesus carried a cross. And it was on that cross that he conquered sin so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. And then and only then did God raise his son from the dead in victory over death, in victory over the grave, so that sin has no more power, death has no more finality. This is a victory that he has won and has now given to us and shared with us. By faith in Christ, we have the conquering grace for all that plagues us in the deepest places of our heart. Even if you still hold on to sin because you still love it, Jesus Christ in his light, Jesus in his grace, is able to forgive you right where you sit and to root that darkness out so that you might know and live for him. We have no reason whatsoever to doubt his grace or to doubt his power because it's all on display in the coming of the Son of God. It's the last line in, in Isaiah 9, the one last line that we read. It's so simple, 
and it almost seems like a little afterthought, but it's very precious. You look at verse 7 again, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is not God's wish dream. That if people would just figure things out and come and meet him halfway, then God could do the rest. That if we would just, you know, get our act together a little bit, then God could bring us on home. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. While the people were mired in darkness and rebellion, God promised a son and a light and salvation. God is passionately committed to fulfilling his promises here. It must happen the way he promised it, because the one who promises it is true. And so Jesus said it in John 12, I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Y'all, there's no better news than this. It's why I don't mind preaching it every Sunday. There's no better news than any person in this world mired in darkness with one look to the Savior to trust Him for His grace may be brought into everlasting light, no longer to walk in darkness, but to have the light of life. Everything that darkness is, lostness and fear, despair, sin and death, is no match for the light of the world who gives us the light of life. May we receive him in wonderful, fresh ways right now, this morning, as we pray. Father, I'm asking for myself, I pray for all of us, for every uh, child and man and woman in this room, for everybody joining us online. We, are, we desperately need to recognize the light of Jesus Christ. We are so easily consumed by darkness. We become cynical. We become fearful and despairing. It, I, just by my own confession, Lord, I, I just I easily um, hold on to the sin that I still enjoy and love, even though I hate it and I know it's it's incongruent with with who I am as a Christian. Um, I don't know why I'm this way. I, I pray, Father, for us that that we would just have a, a, a clearer sense today of who we are so that we might not look to ourselves. Um, Father, help us to, to avoid any temptation to think that, that um, somehow the answer is in me. I just need a better map. I just need to get more serious. Help us, Lord, instead to, to see Jesus in all his glory and his goodness, in his mercy and his grace and his tenderness to come as a child to rescue us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Help us this, this Advent season to, to see Jesus for who he is and to put all our trust in him. Father, will you help us to see this morning um, 
the greatness of this son that we should, we will forever, forever, we will call him our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, eternal father and prince of peace. That there will be nothing in the universe too great, too difficult, too big that he can't shoulder it and carry it with perfect grace and justice and righteousness. Father, help us to see how wonderful he is, how wonderful you are, so that we might live not to please ourselves, not to, to, to seek you know, a, a flashlight in this darkened world, just enough to get by but that we would live to know Jesus Christ, the blinding, glorious light who has come for us. And let us walk in this light each and every day. Father, I, I pray for me that this, this season, as there's maybe a heightened awareness among our friends and neighbors of spiritual things, give us opportunity and give us courage and give us grace to share this light with those we encounter, to live as those who are full of light and to speak the grace that saves. We ask it all in Jesus' awesome and glorious name. Amen.